Prologue of The Moon Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. The Moon Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Prologue The Conquest. It was two years after I had first met him aboard the liner Harding that I came across him again. I had just been appointed Secretary of Commerce. He came to my office in Washington on official business during March 1969. I invited him to my home for dinner, and it was later in the evening that I importuned him for the promised story of Julian the Ninth. He laughed good-naturedly. "'Very well,' he exclaimed. "'Here goes.' Let me preface this story as I did the other that I told you on board the liner Harding two years ago, with the urgent request that you attempt to keep constantly in mind the theory that there is no such thing as time, that there is no past and no future, that there is only now. There never has been anything but now. It is a theory analogous to that which stipulates that there is no such thing as space. I have told you of the attempt made to reach Mars and the Barsoom, and of how it was thwarted by Lieutenant Commander Orthus. That was in the year 2026. The son that was born to Julian V and the princess Nyila in 2036 was the great-grandfather of Julian IX, for whose story you have asked me, and in whom I lived again in the 22nd century. For some reason, no further attempts were made to reach Mars with whom we had been in radio communication, for seventy years. Possibly it was due to the rise of a religious cult which preached against all forms of scientific progress, and which by political pressure was able to mold and influence several successive weak administrations of a notoriously weak party that had had its origin nearly a century before in a group of peace-at-any-price men. In the year 2050, the blow fell. Lieutenant Commander Orthus, after twenty-four years upon the moon, returned to Earth with one hundred thousand Kalkars and a thousand Vagas. In a thousand great ships they came, bearing arms and ammunition and strange new engines of destruction fashioned by the brilliant mind of the arch-villain of the universe. No one but Orthus could have done it. No one but Orthus would have done it. It had been he who had perfected the engines that had made the Barsoom possible, and after he had become the dominant force among the Kalkars of the moon and had aroused their imaginations with tales of the great rich world lying ready and unarmed within easy striking distance of them, it had been an easy thing to enlist their labor in the building of the ships and the manufacture of the countless accessories necessary to the successful accomplishment of the great adventure. The moon furnished all the needed materials, the Kalkars furnished the labor, and Orthus the knowledge, the brains, and the leadership. Ten years had been devoted to the spreading of his propaganda and the winning over of the thinkers, or Kalkars, and then fourteen years were required to build and outfit the fleet. Five days before they arrived, astronomers detected the fleet as minute specks upon the eyepieces of their telescopes. There was much speculation but it was Julian V alone who guessed the truth. He warned the governments at London and Washington, but though he was then in command of the International Peace Fleet, his appeals were treated with levity and ridicule. He knew Orthus, 
and so he knew that it was easily within the man's ability to construct a fleet, and he also knew that only for one purpose would Orthus return to Earth with so great a number of ships. It meant war, and the Earth had nothing but a handful of cruisers wherewith to defend herself. There were not available in all the world 25,000 organized fighting men, nor equipment for more than half again that number. The inevitable occurred. Orthus seized London and Washington simultaneously. His well-armed forces met with practically no resistance. There could be no resistance, for there was nothing wherewith to resist. It was a criminal offense to possess firearms. Even edged weapons with blades over six inches long were barred by law. Military training, except for the chosen few of the International Peace Fleet, had been banned for years. And against this pitiable state of disarmament and unpreparedness was brought a force of a hundred thousand well-armed seasoned warriors with engines of destruction that were unknown to Earthmen. A description of one alone will suffice to explain the utter hopelessness of the cause of the Earthmen. This instrument, of which the invaders brought but one, was mounted upon the deck of their flagship and was operated by Orthus in person. It was an invention of his own, which no Kalkar understood or could operate. Briefly, it was a device for the generation of radioactivity at any desired vibratory rate, and for the directing of the resultant emanations upon any given object within its effective range. We do not know what Orthus called it, but the Earthmen of that day knew it as an electronic rifle. It was quite evidently a recent invention, and therefore in some respects crude, but be that as it may, its effects were sufficiently deadly to permit Orthus to practically wipe out the entire international peace fleet in less than thirty days, as rapidly as the various ships came within range of the electronic rifle. To the layman, the visual effects induced by this weird weapon were appalling and nerve-shattering. A mighty cruiser vibrant with life and power might sail majestically to engage the flagship of the Kalkars, when, as by magic, every aluminum part of the cruiser would vanish as mist before the sun, and as nearly 90% of a peace fleet cruiser, including the hull, was constructed of aluminum, the result may be imagined. One moment there was a great ship forging through the air, her flags and pennants flying in the wind, her band playing, her officers and men at their quarters, the next... A mass of engines, polished wood, cordage, flags, and human beings hurtling earthward to extinction. It was Julian V who discovered the secret of this deadly weapon, and that it accomplished its destruction by projecting upon the ships of the Peace Fleet the vibratory rate of radioactivity identical with that of aluminum, with the result that, thus excited, the electrons of the attacked substance increased their own vibratory rate to a point that they became dissipated again into their elemental and invisible state. In other words, aluminum was transmuted into something else that was as invisible and intangible as ether. Perhaps it was ether. Assured of the correctness of his theory, Julian V withdrew in his own flagship to a remote part of the world, taking with him the few remaining cruisers of the fleet, Orthus searched for them for months, but it was not until the close of the year 2050 that the two fleets met again, and for the last time. Julian V had by this time perfected the plan for which he had gone into hiding, and he now faced the Kalkar fleet and his old enemy Orthus, with some assurance of success. 
His flagship moved at the head of the short column that contained the remaining hope of a world, and Julian V stood upon her deck beside a small and innocent-looking box mounted upon a stout tripod. Orthus moved to meet him. He would destroy the ships one by one as he approached them. He gloated at the easy victory that lay before him. He directed the electronic rifle at the flagship of his enemy and touched a button. Suddenly, his brows knitted. What was this? He examined the rifle. He held a piece of aluminum before its muzzle and saw the metal disappear. The mechanism was operating, but the ships of the enemy did not disappear. Then he guessed the truth, for his own ship was now but a short distance from that of Julian V, and he could see that the hull of the latter was entirely coated with a grayish substance that he sensed at once for what it was, an insulating material that rendered the aluminum parts of the enemy's fleet immune from the invisible fire of his rifle. Orthus's scowl changed to a grim smile. He turned two dials upon a control box connected with the weapon, and again pressed the button. Instantly, the bronze propellers of the Earthman's flagship vanished in thin air, together with numerous fittings and parts above decks. Similarly went the exposed bronze parts of the balance of the internal peace fleet, leaving a squadron of drifting derelicts at the mercy of the foe. Julian V's flagship was at that time but a few fathoms from that of Orthus. The two men could plainly see one another's features. Orthus's expression was savage and gloating, that of Julian V's sober and dignified. "'You thought to beat me, then?' jeered Orthus. "'God, but I have waited and labored and sweated for this day. I have wrecked a world to best you, Julian V, to best you and to kill you, but to let you know first that I am going to kill you. To kill you in such a way that man was never before killed, as no other brain than mine could conceive of killing. You insulated your aluminum parts, thinking thus to thwart me. But you did not know. Your feeble intellect could not know. That as easily as I destroyed aluminum, I can, by the simplest of adjustments, attune this weapon to destroy any one of a hundred different substances, and among them human flesh or bone." That is what I am going to do now, Julian V. First, I am going to dissipate the bony structure of your frame. It will be done painlessly. It may not even result in instant death, and I am hoping that it will not. For I want you to know the power of a real intellect. The intellect from which you stole the fruits of its efforts for a lifetime. But not again, Julian V, for today you die. First your bones, then your flesh, and after you, your men, and after them, your spawn, the son that the woman I loved bore you. But she, she shall belong to me. Take that memory to hell with you. And he turned toward the dials beside his lethal weapon. But Julian V placed a hand upon the little box resting upon the strong tripod before him. And he, it was, who touched a button before Orthus had touched his. Instantly, the electronic rifle vanished beneath the very eyes of Orthus, and at the same time the two ships touched, and Julian V had leaped the rail to the enemy deck and was running toward his arch-enemy. Orthus stood, gazing horrified, at the spot where the greatest invention of his giant intellect had stood but an instant before. And then he looked up at Julian V approaching him, and cried out horribly. Stop! He screamed. Always our lives you have robbed me of the fruits of my efforts. 
Somehow you have stolen the secret of this, my greatest invention, and now you have destroyed it. May God in heaven! Yes, cried Julian V, and I am going to destroy you, unless you surrender to me with all your force. Never! Almost screamed the man, who seemed veritably demented, so hideous was his rage. Never! This is the end, Julian V, for both of us! Even as he uttered the last word, he threw a lever mounted upon a control board before him. There was a terrific explosion, and both ships, bursting into flame, plunged meteor-like into the ocean beneath. Thus went Julian V and Orthus to their deaths, carrying with them the secret of the terrible destructive force that the latter had brought with him from the moon. But the earth was already undone. It lay helpless before its conquerors. What the outcome might have been, had Orthus lived, may only remain conjecture. Possibly he would have brought order out of the chaos he had created, and instituted a reign of reason. Earthmen would at least have had the advantage of his wonderful intellect and his power to rule the ignorant Kalkars that he had transported from the moon. There might even have been some hope had the Earthmen banded together against the common enemy, but this they did not do. Elements who had been discontented with this or that phase of government joined issues with the invaders. The lazy, the inefficient, the defective, who ever placed the blame for their failures upon the shoulders of the successful, swarmed to the banners of the Kalkars in whom they sensed kindred souls. Political factions, labor and capital each saw, or thought they saw, an opportunity for advantage to themselves in one way or another that was inimical to the interests of the others. The Kalkar fleets returned to the moon for more Kalkars until it was estimated that seven millions of them were being transported to Earth each year. Julian VI, with Naila, his moon-made mother, lived, as did Ortis, the son of Orthus. But my story is not to be of them, but of Julian IX, who was born just a century after the birth of Julian V. Julian IX will tell his own story. End of prologue.